If you need to, turn back to or just cause your eyes to be prepared to go over to chapter 1, which will be today we'll start our verse-by-verse study through this tremendous book. Um, Last week, if you were not here with us, what I did was introduce the book, and we uh, paid attention to some very important things about John, who wrote the book, and important reasons of why he wrote the book. We saw last week that before John was uh, uh, placed on the Isle of Patmos and to eventually die there, that he spent a lot of his time after Jesus' crucifixion, uh, death, burial, and resurrection, John spent a lot of his time with Jerusalem as his headquarters. It was there that he cared for Jesus' mother. Uh, When the temple was destroyed and the great diaspora, the dispersion of Jews in 70 AD, John took up his uh, headquarters now then in Ephesus. Uh, He is the one who wrote the Gospel of John, these three epistles in front of us, and, of course, the book of Revelation. Uh, His pupils included Polycarp, Papias, Ignatius, and uh, he spent a lot of his time once headquartered in Ephesus, traveling throughout Asia Minor, visiting these small pockets of of this new uh, thing called the church, the Christians, stepping into uh, each and every environment and reminding those Christians to love one another. We saw last week, of course, that he uh, had four reasons for writing this book, one of which we read just a few moments ago in verse 1 of chapter 2, so that Christians may not sin. But then uh, he goes on to add to that, if someone sins, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's his second reason. The first comes to us in the first chapter. We saw it last week, verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, these things I write, to you that your joy may be full. So that the Christian would walk in in fullness of joy. So that the Christian would understand that they're no longer bound to the nature of sin. But when sin happens in a Christian's life, we have an advocate with the Father. The third reason he wrote the book, we saw it last week, was that there's an anointing that comes upon every Christian, every born-again Christian that has the Spirit of God in them and upon them, that that anointing is enough and sufficient to teach you and I. He said that in verse uh, 6 of chapter 2. You have an anointing and you have no need of anyone to teach you. And his last reason for writing the book comes all the way at the end of this first epistle, chapter 5, Verse 13, as he uh, underscores the fact that everyone is to know they have eternal life. And so we back up just a bit now to begin this uh, verse-by-verse study 
I draw your attention, please, to verse 1, in which we read, John writes, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And John here goes all the way back uh, to the beginnings of things. Uh, This echoes John's gospel. If you recall, in his uh, gospel, John wrote, in the beginning was God. I'm sorry, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And he says, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing that was made was made. And that in him, this person who is the word, who was with God, who was there in the beginning, that in him was life, and that life was the light of men, and that that light shined in the darkness. John is referring here in this verse to the substance of, of the person of Jesus Christ. And he covers uh, in these four clauses, really he covers from uh, the beginning of time all the way through the crucifixion. And his emphasis is that the eternal one became man. We call it the uh, incarnation. God incarnate. God becoming man. In his gospel, he reminds us of that. In the 14th verse of the first chapter, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so here, John is emphasizing to the Christian, to every reader, to you and I this morning, that this eternal being, this person, that which was from the beginning was discernible by three of the human senses. By hearing, by seeing, and by touching. The word of life. These three senses within the human life is interesting, you know, uh, if you think about hearing we can hear the sound of a, an ambulance or a fire truck and immediately it causes a response, right? We think danger, if we're driving, we pull over. We can hear the cry of an infant child and that produces a response in, in us as well. We immediately think there's a human need there that needs to be met. We can hear the scream of pain. And we realize, of course, in response to that scream of pain that there's human hardship going on. But what's interesting about this word that John uses there in the first verse, uh, that which we have heard, it is a word that, that implies they understood him. They didn't just look at him and, and not do anything with that sight. They, they understood him as being the promised coming Messiah. John says that 
they also, they, they saw him, that which we have seen. The word there is an interesting in the original language. It is pronounced horao, and it bears with it the fact that they beheld him intelligently. They didn't just look at him and not have a response. They, they looked at him, they beheld him with intelligence. They heard him with understanding. I find it interesting, uh, Sherry shared an article with me recently that is really quite profound. Uh, busy New York subway. Recently, a man went into this subway area, trains going, people going back and forth. He opened his violin case and he stood there and for 45 minutes played the violin. He was playing a, a, a classical piece and busy people going to and fro, to and fro. And out of the hundreds, if not more, people that passed by him, no one actually stopped and took a long time to listen and look. A couple of parents, their child would stop and they would stop for just a second, then they would scurry on and keep going. One or two would just glance for a minute and then go. And out of all the ones that, that passed by this individual, only a few threw a dollar in the hat. And this Violinist played for 45 minutes and then packed up and left. What no one knew is that that same man, weeks before, had packed out the most luxurious concert hall in all of New York. That that same man was playing one of the hardest pieces that a violin can play that that same man was holding in his hands the most expensive violin today made. And in the article, it brings out the fact that in our busyness of coming and going, what are we missing? And I would ask that question of you and I this hour, in our busyness of coming and going as it relates to the Lord, to seeing the Lord, to hearing his voice, what are we missing? What are you missing? John brings out, as it relates to them, that they not only heard him and understood him, not only saw him intelligently, but their hands handled him. They touched him. And thinking about that, touch often uh, really speaks of relationship. The closeness that you have in relationship with someone enough to touch them. How powerful that is. I uh, want to thank all of you who have been praying for my brother and uh, our family. Rick has been settled into a nursing care facility in Placerville. 
and is there under hospice to live out his last days. And in our visit yesterday, um, as we put on some worship music, you could see a tear run down his eye. And it's one thing to sit on the bed or sit on a chair next to him, but it's another to reach out and hold his hand. A touch speaks greatly of relationship. And so John is saying, we had a relationship with him. We understood him. We saw him intelligently and we had relationship with him. And so it it begs the question today, 2,000 years later, because Jesus told them, you know, he told them about this great separation that was going to happen, right? He said, I'm, I'm going to leave you. And if you look at John's gospel, chapter 13 through 17, it's what we have called the upper room discourse because it took place in an upper room in Jerusalem on the night before he was to be betrayed in which he spent, you know, John gives us like, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, five chapters of what Jesus was imparting to them on that last night. And and the mood in that room was horrific because they had been physically with him for three years. And what he's telling them is, I'm now going away. And here we come fast forward to 2,000 years We can't physically touch Jesus this morning. You and I cannot physically put out our hand and touch him. But in prayer, the Spirit of God allows us to, as the woman in the crowd, press through the crowd because she knew if she could just hold on to the the hem of his garment that her life would be made whole. In prayer, we can press through the distractions of this life. In prayer, we can press past the busyness of coming and going and missing what it is God wants to say or do in our life. And we can touch him in prayer and he can touch us. We can't physically see him today. But we can look upon him intelligently. How? All through the Gospels. Remember? Philip asking and Jesus said, How long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In every one of those Gospels, we get a little bit varied, but the same orchestrated picture of who our resurrected saving Messiah is. And then we come to that all-important hearing his voice. Are you hearing his voice today? Are you even listening? Are you running through the subway of life too busy to recognize that the greatest Man in human history, the God-man, fully God and yet fully man, is speaking. And what he's saying is divinely important.
You can hear him, I can hear him all through this love letter that he left us. And believe me, don't take my word for it, but believe me, he is speaking. And he wants to speak to you and to me. It takes an intentional moment, if you will. There's a word, right? That's a word for today, intentional. I don't know when that came on the map, but it's there. It takes an intentional moment, beloved, to say, God, speak to me. I'm listening. Because John reminds us in verse 2 that that life was manifest and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He says it happened. The application, of course, would be, is it happening in your life and in mine as Christians today, because that's why John's writing. He says that, that your joy may be full, that you can still reach out in prayer and by the Holy Spirit touch him. You can still have your uh, you know, spiritual eyes on to where you can see him at work. You can have your spiritual ears on that you can hear him speaking to you. And John, in verse 3, you might notice, gets into uh, why he is doing uh, this thing about reminding what what powerfully happened in verse 1 and 2. He says in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, notice he says, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. Here, John is taking that moment to uh, definitely declare the deity of Christ. Uh, He is God's only begotten son. There's no other son that... The Christian, and we're going to talk about fellowship in a moment, but that the Christian can have fellowship with the Father uh, and with his only begotten Son. And in that relationship, we talked about relationship a minute ago, in that touching, in that hearing, and in that seeing, which which. All relationship includes that, that there is a joy to be had in the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10, uh, Nehemiah was writing to the people of God and he said, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Man, we can go out into this world, you can be here this hour, 
getting a little bit stronger spiritually. You're getting fed the word of God. You're getting, you know, able to just raise your hand, our hands and worship God. And we, we get strengthened here. You can go out into that world and it's like a vacuum. It'll start to suck the very spiritual strength out of you as you and I take a look at what's going on around us. Holy Jesus. Sorry, and I mean that in the most reverent way. What in the world is going on around us? A lot of horrific things. And if we focus upon that, our spiritual strength is strained. It is sucked from us. But our strength is to be in the Lord. Our joy is to be in his strength. So then in uh, the following verse, verse 5, John gets into the very message that he's trying to communicate. Uh, He says in verse 5, he says that this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And uh, what we find in this next uh, section uh, from verse 5 all the way through the second verse of chapter 2 is John is going to give uh, practical and ethical doctrinal truth as it relates to being a Christian, the, the doctrine or the teaching that is true and how that teaching is to practically employ itself in my life, because John knew that deceivers were coming, people are easily deceived. John knew it, bringing heretical ideas into uh, the realm of of this thing called the body of Christ, the church. And so he says that God is light. One commentator puts it this way, light is the purest and most subtle, the most useful and the most diffusive of all of God's uh, natures. It is therefore a very proper emblem of the purity, perfection and goodness of the divine being. God is light. And what is light? Hello, what is light? Except the absence of... of darkness. What is darkness? It is the absence of light. Okay? So what we find in this statement that John makes is that in God there is perfect light. There is purity of light. There is goodness. Another commentator brings out the fact that uh, the sun has spots on it. Great tracks of blackness on its radiant disk, but in God is unmingled perfect purity. So God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So we come to this subject of of what what is the light that John is referring to. In the book of Genesis, when we deal with the the creation account, we're talking about a physical uh, light, right? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, or light be and light was. And in, in that, those very first two verses, we have uh, the Trinity, the triune God, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the spoken, the word. And yet what we're dealing with in that creative account is a physical light. What John is talking about here is that in God, there is a moral purity, intellectual truth. In God, there is light. God is light. He is truth. He is purity. And there's no darkness in him at all. And so Jesus spoke about this in, in uh, recorded in Matthew's gospel, that it's possible... It's possible for Christians to be confused about the very light that they're living their lives by. Another commentator says that if we say we have fellowship with him, uh, John reveals a false claim to fellowship. Based upon this, we understand that it's possible to claim a relationship with God that they do not have. We can also say that it is possible for someone to think they have a relationship with God that they do not have. How would that be uh, assessed or how would that be borne out to be true? A, is my life seeking to be lived in moral purity? B, is my life seeking to be lived in intellectual truth? Jesus said it in Matthew's gospel. He said, if the lamp of the body, he said, the lamp of the body is the eye. In other words, what's going on can be seen through the eye gate. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be good. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be filled with darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What's he mean? It's possible for some who profess to be Christians to be living in various areas of darkness. That's why it's so important to have good spiritual vision. I think I put that up there. Having good spiritual vision means having the capacity to see clearly what God wants us to do and to see the world from his point of view. This perspective can be easily obscured by self-serving desires, interests, and goals. Serving God is the best way to restore it. A healthy eye stays fixed on God. And then as we wind down this morning, I can see the clock is ticking. Uh, I'm going to take us very quickly through... um, What follows is there are three conditional clauses followed by three what we would call corrective directives in which John now fleshes out whether or not a Christian is living by the light, the intellectual truth and moral truth of the word of God. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, that's the clause. 
Here's the consequence. We lie and do not practice the truth. King James leaves out the word practice. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So here's this uh, introduction into this book of the word fellowship. What do we mean by that? Uh, A Greek word, uh, koinonia, but what's important about that word is that it was developed during the start of the initial church, during the inception of Christians gathering and being together, there was no uh, Grecian expression for that. So the word was coined to express what Christians can have. And only Christians can have koinonia. So if we say we have, and it means like, Oneness, okay? If we say we have oneness with God, but in our life and in our practice, there is moral impurity and intellectual lying, then we're not practicing the truth. The coinciding directive or provision for that not being the case is verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I find it interesting that in that verse, John takes uh, the attention away from fellowship with him to fellowship with one another by way of walking in intellectual truth and moral purity. That if we're going to live in such a way where we're going to have oneness with other Christians, there's going to be a biblical intellectual truth and a biblical moral purity that we have. Does that resonate with anybody this morning? Am I just like bouncing it off the wall? It's like you can get with others that have a... uh, have a a distorted view of what's true and have a perverted view of what's moral. And they can be saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yes. It can happen, John's saying. Second clause. We'll get through this quickly and then we'll end. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, verse 8, and the truth is not in us. So here's the the clause. If we say we have no sin, the consequence is we're deceived. And this truth of, of the word of God is not in us. It's out here outside of us. Now here's the directive corrective provision. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Third clause, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, here's the consequence. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. John brings out a distinction between just the truth 
being in us and the word being in us. He brings out a distinction between if we say we have no sin or if we say we have not sinned. Again, talked about it last week. What we are and what we do are two different things. So John in this last clause is saying if we say we have not done things that are a sin in the eyes of God, we make him a liar. Now, a lot of times you can find someone who says, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. Uh, but wait a minute, there's a provision. The confession of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And that's to be, if I might, with you this hour as we wind down, you know, Lord, forgive me of my sin. It's important to name that if God's put something on your heart. That he's put his finger on that says, that, that bothers me, that hurts me, that grieves me when that word, thought, or action is a part of your life. Word, thought, or action. And if we say we haven't, we make him a liar, but here's, here's the directive uh, provision. Verse 1 of chapter 2, which we read this morning, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. So we wind it up this morning, close it with, these three conditional clauses and the answer to them. Do we say we've got fellowship or oneness with God, the Father, but practice things that would say the opposite of our lives? Or do we, uh, in fact, have fellowship and oneness with others in the body of Christ regularly because of the blood of Jesus? Number one. Number two. Do we say that man is basically good uh, and we remain deceived about the human nature? Oh, man's basically good. He just does bad things. No, man is bad. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and there is one solution for that, the saving grace of Christ. So, do we say man is basically good and remain deceived about the sin nature? Or do we confess the missing of the mark so that we can experience his faithful cleansing? Number three, and finally this morning, do we say that we have not missed the mark? Or do we regularly embrace the truth of our constant need for our advocate, Jesus himself? Those are questions and answers that each of us can wrestle with and seek to walk in this week ahead. Will you join me as we close in prayer? Lord, thank you for your servant, John, who faithfully wrote these things that our joy may be full and that we may not sin, but that if we sin, we have you Oh, Jesus, we have you as our advocate. 
And because of your blood, when we confess the missing of, our, of the mark, you have promised that we are forgiven of all unrighteousness. Not just some, not just one. Oh God, thank you for the cleansing blood. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Would you, in this week ahead of us, remind us, Lord, of how good you are, that you are life, that you are love, and we are in desperate need of you every hour. Come, O God, and revive our hearts, we pray. Revive your church. You know every heart here this morning. You know what word was needed. And so as you would put your Holy Spirit, your finger on that thing, minister to us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone said amen.